Well, there are a number of people in the Bible who spent 40 days away with God alone. Moses, Elijah, Jesus himself. And I would imagine that when they finally came back, people kind of were interested in what they experienced and learned during those 40 days. Well, in a sense, I've been away for like 60 days. So I want to share with you a little bit of what I experienced um, from the Lord during that time. I'm going to preach today from the primary passage that I meditated on during my leave, 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. As you're turning your Bibles there, which you can find on, on uh, actually I don't remember what page it's on, I forgot to look that up, a little out of practice here, but you can find it somewhere in there. I want to go ahead and tell you two of the most significant truths that I learned during my time away. Truths that I also see flowing from this passage and that I hope will also flow into your story as well. They are first, God loves in ways that will change your life. And second, God works in ways that will blow your mind. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18, but I'll only be reading to verse 12. In light of the matchless word of God, church, hear the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mounts before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound 
of a low whisper. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there's this scene in the book and film, The Lord of the Rings, that's been playing on repeat in my mind since August. And if you're not familiar with the story, then let me set it up for you. There's a group of nine people. They're called the Fellowship of the Ring. And they're on a quest to save Middle-earth. It's an unexpected mix representing all the various groups of the day, men, elves, dwarves, and hobbits. And the way that they all came together was through the singular leadership of a wizard named Gandalf the Grey. Now Gandalf has powerfully led them at this point in the story through a place called the Mines of Moria, where they are chased by an army of goblins, and they even awaken a giant ancient demon of fire called a Balrog. Now even if you haven't seen the film, you probably know this moment from a gif or something Uh, where Gandalf stands his ground on a narrow bridge and shouts, You shall not pass! All right? The bridge then buckles, the Balrog plummets into the abyss below, and Gandalf takes a huge sigh of relief and turns to flee. And just as everyone else breathes that same sigh of relief, the Balrog craps, craps... (laughs) cracks. I would do that too if I was falling into an abyss. But in addition to that, he cracks his giant whip, which wraps around the leg of Gandalf and pulls him to the ledge. He manages to hang on for only a moment, casting one last gaze and a parting word to the fellowship before then falling into the abyss himself and dying. Of course, spoiler alert here, Gandalf does return later in the story, but no longer as Gandalf the Grey. He is resurrected as a far more wise and powerful being, Gandalf the White. And thanks to Josiah, who gave me this a couple years ago when he asked me to disciple him, or in his his words, to be his Gandalf... I have this replica of uh, Gandalf's staff here. And I'm going to move it back here so I don't fall over it and into the abyss and do what the Balrog did. Now, why has this scene been on repeat in my mind since August? Because when I started to experience severe burnout and I found myself alone to face my demons, I felt like Gandalf falling into the abyss. And I even made it my prayer. Lord, if I ever make it out of this, please let me come back like Gandalf the White, like transformed and wiser for having gone through all of this. And I think this is not just a picture of me, but also of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. In order to understand how he ended up seemingly falling to his death and then coming back changed, we must first consider the context. So let me paint the picture for you. The people of Israel have for centuries been struggling with worshiping idols instead of the one true God, Yahweh. 
They've had a string of bad kings who have allowed this idol worship, but none of them have been as bad as a king named Ahaz. Ahaz married a woman named Jezebel, the princess of Tyre, and a devotee to the Tyrian god Baal. And through Ahaz, Jezebel is allowed to make Baal worship the official religion of Israel. She does things like slaughters all of Yahweh's prophets and priests. She installs Baal's prophets and priests. And then she forces everyone to kiss Baal or to worship in devotion to him alone. And it's seemingly the most threatening moment to monotheism since the worship of the golden calf in Exodus 32. But in the midst of it all, Yahweh is working. And part of what we see him doing in response is sending the great prophet Elijah. And through Elijah's prayers, sending forth a great drought upon the land. It then culminates in a story that if you've been around church at all, you are probably familiar with. Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah calls King Ahaz to a showdown. He essentially says, gather all the people of Israel and all the prophets of Baal and meet me on Mount Carmel. And we'll sacrifice two bulls and whichever God answers by fire, he is God. Once and for all. So the prophets of Baal do their thing. They sacrifice, they cry out, they prostrate themselves, they cut themselves. But Baal doesn't answer. And Elijah makes fun of them. He's like, maybe he's busy. One of the words you can translate in the Hebrew, though, the Bible doesn't usually do this, is maybe he's on the toilet. Elijah's just laughing at him. And then Elijah basically has a moat built around his sacrifice, fills it with water, and then prays to Yahweh. He says, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then what happens? Do you know the story? Young disciples, do you know this story? What happens? Does God answer? Oh man, the fire of Yahweh falls. And it consumed not just the bull, but the altar and the stones and the dust and even all the water. Like if you, if you were going to perform one miracle to prove once and for all to everyone that there is a God in heaven and he is God, this would be what you do, right? How could you come up with something better to do than this? It's amazing. But that's not even the end of it. Then... Elijah has all the 950 prophets of Baal slaughtered. And then he prays and a huge rain comes to end the drought. So can you imagine the spiritual high that Elijah is on? Like we get some sense of it because we read at the end of the chapter, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That means this guy ran over 16 miles and did it faster than Ahab on his chariot. Is that crazy? Like his Holy Spirit adrenaline is pumping. And we know it not just because of how he ran, but where he ran. To Jezreel, the capital city, where the king and queen had a bounty on his head. You know the only way that you could run into the eye of a storm like that? 
It's if you are totally convinced that a revolution is happening and that either the evil king and queen are going to repent or God's people are going to rise up and throw them out. And that's exactly what Elijah had prayed for. You remember? Lord, let your fire of judgment fall so that it turns back the hearts of your people. Elijah is saying, surely this is the Lord's plan. Surely I am the new Moses. Surely I have done everything necessary to bring revival. And what happens? Something completely unexpected. And something that starts us down the road of understanding the first truth. That God loves in ways that will change your life. We read beginning in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So what does this mean? Well, it means that Jezebel was completely unfazed by this demonstration of Yahweh's power. Furthermore, it means that the people of Israel were also unfazed, that their hearts were not turned back. Y'all, this would be like uh, gathering all the citizens of the United States at the Capitol Reflecting Pool in Washington, D.C., and then performing this kind of miracle that even laps up all the water in that pool, on live TV, no less. And then afterward, it doesn't even make the evening news or trend on social media. No one really even pays attention. Tell me how you would respond to that, right? What would you feel if after experiencing that, people didn't even respond? Well, here's how Elijah responded in verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Yahweh, take away my life, for I am no better than my father. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So what do we see here? Well, a few things. We see that Elijah is afraid. He is in total panic. I don't know if you've ever experienced a panic attack. But when I have experienced them, one of the sensations I have is it makes me feel like I want to run away. Run for my life. And that's exactly what Elijah did here. Elijah was also alone. You see that he leaves his servant behind, which is to say, I quit. I'm out of the ministry. I'm done. We see that he's exhausted. He runs until he collapses. He can go no further. He says, it's enough. There's nothing left. We see also that he is deceived. Later, he will say, I am the only one left, even though he is not. He's also despondent. He says, Lord, take away my life. He's ashamed. He says, I'm no better than my father's. Y'all, Elijah is a complete mess. A washed up prophet. 
a broken man. This man who only four verses earlier was performing some of the greatest miracles the world had ever seen. And we might say, like, man, something like must be wrong with Elijah. Maybe he had developed bipolar disorder. Maybe that's what's going on with this man. Some scholars even suggest these stories back to back, Mount Carmel and then Elijah under the broom tree, are mistakes in editing the Old Testament. That a longer period of time had elapsed between them or something's going down. They couldn't be this close to each other. Surely Elijah couldn't so quickly go from this kind of high to this kind of low. But Elijah is actually in good company in the Bible. There are two others at least that we see so broken that they get to the point where they ask God to take their lives. And both of them do this right after something amazing has been accomplished through them for God. The first one, Moses, and the second one, Jonah. Like these are not weak followers of God. This is not the junior varsity of the Bible. And we see, though, that this is not only common in the Bible, but it's also common in our lives as well. And maybe not with such extreme highs and lows, but we can, can't we, be soaring on a spiritual high, and all it takes is one thing going wrong, and we can be in complete unbelief that God is even active in our lives anymore, that he's against us instead of for us. You know, you just had a wonderful quiet time that morning. And that one person does that one thing in traffic, makes you lose it all. Or everything's going well, and then you get that one medical bill that blows your budget, and you literally don't know what to do. It's like life is over. Heck, man, you can't connect to the Wi-Fi. You want to throw your phone against the wall. Like, yes, we are that fickle. This is human nature. But still, it's fair to ask, I think, like, why is Elijah's breakdown so severe? Like, I have even sensed that question in people toward my situation. Like, how could you be such a strong man of faith and end up such a mess? Well, was it physical? Yes, I would imagine the grind of this man's work was exhausting. I say, was it psychological? Yes, I would imagine that slaughtering 950 prophets would mess with your head just a little bit. Was it relational? Yes, I would imagine that if you're doing all these things with no one but a servant, it would isolate you. Was it vocational? Yes, I would imagine that carrying what felt like the weight of Israel's fate would be an incredible burden. And finally, was it spiritual? Absolutely. Like this is one of the most insane battles of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament. But Tim Keller says the key to understanding Elijah's broken state and the severity of it is to see it as a matter of unmet expectations. You see, Elijah had a plan for changing people's hearts. And he had worked that plan perfectly. And he expected God to carry it out just like he had done with Moses. And then when God didn't, Elijah literally didn't know what to do. He's like, Yahweh, I don't even know who you are anymore. For that matter, I don't even know who I am anymore. Ever been there? 
If you can be honest in church, have you ever been there? God, even though I have done everything you asked, like this is what I get? Like, Like, where are you? I don't even know who you are anymore. I'm lost. I quit. And so like Elijah, he needs to be rebuked and corrected, doesn't he? Like he, he really isn't any better than his father's. He's putting himself in God's place. This is sin. But how does God respond? Verse 5. And behold, look. Remember that word when it's there in the scriptures. It's saying, look reader, pay attention to this. An angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and, and behold, look, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Y'all, God responds by sending the angel of the Lord. Now, we have learned from other parts of the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord is most likely a theophany. That is, an Old Testament manifestation of Jesus Christ. Now, God's mediator himself draws near to this broken man. And what does he do? Does he send fire to consume Elijah for his pride and unbelief? Oh yes, there is fire involved, but only to cook and bake bread. And for you dads in the room who need a good joke, it was angel food cake. You're welcome. So we see that God's care is physical. It's like he's saying, Elijah, you are a physical being, and I see that you are exhausted. So here, have a good meal and a long nap. We also see that God's care is psychological. Later in the passage, God will draw Elijah out with good questions, and then he'll listen to him share his heart. It's like he's saying, Elijah, you are a psychological being, so here, share with me what is burdening. Furthermore, God's care here is relational. The angel of the Lord comes to him and touches him and talks to him and watches over him. It's like he's saying, Elijah, you are a relational being, so I'm here to show you that you are not alone. This care is also vocational. God gives Elijah, if you noticed, no new prophetic tasks. It's like he's saying, Elijah, you are more than your work. So lay down your burdens for a while and just be. And finally, this care is clearly spiritual. God is giving Elijah what his soul longs for the most. God himself. It's like he's saying, Elijah, here is a fresh encounter with my voice and my presence. What is this, my friends? This is the whole love of God. For the whole person. And this is what I experienced over these past two months. Over and over and over. And like I I can't express to you. It would take me hours to communicate to you what all that looked like for God to be so faithful day after day. But I want to sum it up 
Because I think it's captured by this song that God used so often to care for me. In it, the, the artist is singing about like, I should, I should have it together by now. Get over this. Come on. And the chorus is like God speaking back to him. When you weep, don't you dry those eyes. Because I'm coming around and right beside, I'll cry. Someday soon, we'll be dancing on that grave. But as for you right now, no need to be brave. All those voices, please stop listening. Just these words I want you to hear from me. Broken. You have permission to be. Is that a stretch? I mean, look at the passage. Look at how God draws near to Elijah in this moment. Is he not saying, Elijah, you have permission to be broken? I get it. I'm here. And this is the love of God that is available to you too in your mess. And this is the spirit of which we are able to extend to one another in the church. And you know what this love does? It will change your life. Every time, a little bit more, it will change your life. Look at Elijah's life in verse 8. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights up a mountain to Horeb, the mount of God. Like he's back on his feet with this hunger for God that carries him on a quest to experience God afresh. Not just rely on past experiences, even though they are the most amazing experiences anyone could have. No, I want something new and fresh from my God. He's broken, but still saying yes. Broken, but still saying yes. Church, as you follow God in this same way, He will love you in ways that will change your life. There's more to the story here. And so we shall see that God also works in ways that will blow your mind. Continuing in verse 9, we read of Elijah. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now to put this in context, it's important to know where Elijah is. Horeb is likely the same place as Mount Sinai 
where Moses himself spent 40 days and 40 nights and received from God the covenantal law for Israel. And if you know that story, then you probably can see the parallels here. That is when the fire of Yahweh fell on Mount Sinai. And God hid Moses in a cleft in the rock and passed by and covered Moses' eyes so that he would not die. Elijah is possibly in the exact same cleft of the exact same mountain. So again, there are expectations in Elijah's mind and ours that God will work in the same way that he did with Moses. Great signs and wonders, the big and dramatic. And then right on cue, here comes the wind and the earthquake and the fire, these common signs of God's judgment and wrath. And Elijah has to be like, yeah, baby, we are back in business. Now here is my God. So imagine his surprise when God doesn't manifest himself in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire but in the least big and dramatic way possible, a low whisper, a still small voice. What is this? It's not an act of judgment. It's a word of grace. Now, why would God reveal himself this way? Well, two reasons that I want to highlight. First, because Elijah has tried to put God in a box. He's, he said, this is who God is. This is how God works. Follow this formula, and this is what he'll do. And God's like, no, you can't put me in a box. That's what the pagans do with their gods, but you can't manipulate me to accomplish your plans no matter how spiritual they are. You know, we may say, God, I want my family to be saved God, I want to serve you in this specific way. God, I want this beautiful thing to happen in and around my life. And that's well and good, and we should desire those things. But ultimately, we can't manipulate God to make those things happen. And to do so is putting ourselves in the place of God. And part of Elijah's healing and growth and our healing and growth is dying to his expectations and being opened up to a bigger vision of who God is. I mean, look at the rebuke and the recommissioning that does ultimately come, beginning in verse 15. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, in every mouth that has not kissed him. So God's like, Elijah, you think you're the only one that I'm working through? Check this out. Anoint a pagan Syrian king, and I'm going to use him to bring my justice. And anoint a guy named Elisha, 
and I'm going to use him to succeed you. And oh, by the way, Elisha goes on to perform twice as many miracles as Elijah. And as for being the sole protector of monotheism, I'm actually going to end up with 7,000 who worship me alone. You know what that had to be like for Elijah? Mind-blowing. <laughs> and I feel like that's what I've experienced so similarly so many times in my years of following the one true God. And especially during my time at Antioch. Like I came in as a 32-year-old first-time senior pastor with all kinds of dreams and expectations about what was going to happen. And over and over, I found myself having to die to them and being opened up to a bigger vision of who God is, the God who cannot be put in a box. And it's just like the first sermon that I preached at Antioch. I'm sure no one remembers except me, but it was the story of Peter stepping out of the boat and into the unknown in order to get more of Jesus. And I find myself there again here at the end of my time at Antioch. The result I feel like is again from the words of this song from the artist Andrew Bloom. Your oceans wave without thinking. Your mountains rise without knowing. Your rivers run without needing to know where they are going. Your lilies spinning so free, they're happy to be. Teach me this kind of humility. What could be ahead of you, individually and as a church, that if you opened yourself up, not just to God working in the big and dramatic ways, hope for that, pray for that, but you opened yourself up also to continue seeing Him working in the small and the unimpressive ways, it would cultivate in your life a beautiful humility. Certainly God has revealed himself here in a small, unimpressive way in order for Elijah to experience this kind of humility. But a second reason why I think he does it is because Elijah has assumed that God's judgment is what changes hearts. He thought that Mount Carmel was the way to God, that his fiery wrath would save people. And indeed, God is a God of justice, isn't he? Like, therefore, in a sinful world, judgment is a necessary part of working out his good purposes. It's just not his primary work. If it was his primary work, then Elijah would not have survived the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. Instead, what is it that changes Elijah's heart here? Anybody paying attention? Young disciples, what changes Elijah's heart up on the mountain? Is it the earthquake, the wind, or the fire? What is it? The voice. That's right. What is it then that changes your heart and saves people? The voice of God. The calling by name. The word of grace. And how is it that Elijah is able to receive the word of grace instead of being destroyed by the act of judgment? By being hidden in the cleft of the rock. You see, it was the cleft that took the wind, the earthquake, and the fire instead of Elijah. 
And so I would ask you today, my friends, where is your cleft in the rock? Do you think that you are better than the prophet Elijah? That when the fiery wrath of God comes once and for all against sinners, that you can handle it? That you won't be consumed like the bull and the altar and the water and the dust? Or that when it comes, then you'll believe and let your heart be changed by the one true God? Are you in the place of God to make that kind of plan? No. It will be far too late. So then where is the cleft to hide? There's only one. And it is found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I mean, like, wouldn't it be nice to have your own personal angel to come down and minister to you like Elijah in your mess? Well, Jesus actually did that. (laughs) As a real person sent to minister to us with God's whole person love. Check this out. When Jesus' disciples had abandoned him unto death, and his best friend Peter had denied even knowing him three times, and those disciples have given up on Jesus and gone back to fishing, what happens? Does the fire of Yahweh fall in the way that they deserve? No. The end of the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ shows up, and what does he do? Cook some breakfast. And consider the big and dramatic miracles that Jesus performed. But also that he dwelled with us in a way that was small and unimpressive. People look at him and say, just a man from Nazareth. And then consider that he too spent 40 days and 40 nights alone. But he never tried to put God in a box. And so that meant that even when the plans of God demanded that he die a broken man on a cross, in humility, he followed. Behold the judgment of God. The book of Proverbs tells us, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. And even though Jesus had been perfectly jealous for the household of Yahweh, on the cross, do you know what Jesus was inheriting? The wind that you and I deserved. In the moment that Jesus died on the cross, what does the gospel of Matthew tell us? Do you remember? That the earth shook and that the rocks were split. That means he took the earthquake that you and I deserved. And when the author of Hebrews, pulling from the Old Testament, writes that our God is a consuming fire. We look at Jesus laying buried in a tomb and we're like, where's the fire? Where is it? But it's not that he didn't make the fire of Yahweh fall. It's that he made it fall on himself. He took the punishment that our sins deserved. Why? So that when you hide yourself in his cleft, when you worship him as the one true God, risen from the dead, you get to hear the voice of God calling you by name, speaking a word of grace. 
the gospel. The only thing with the power to change your heart. You see, church, Jesus is our true and better Gandalf. One day, returning in white to judge God's enemies, to save God's people, and to redeem all the earth. And check this out. To be discipled by him is to experience two things somehow at the same time. One, the life-changing love of God that is physical, psychological, relational, vocational, and spiritual, and so much more. And two, the mind-blowing work of God that opens you up to an ever-expanding and bigger vision of who he is. You put those two things together, and what do you get? You get a people who are both humble and confident at the same time. Or in other words, a people who are broken, but still saying yes. Don't you want to be that today? Church, don't you want to be that kind of church today? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, You're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, let's announce this together. Jesus, you are the one true God, and you have turned our hearts back to you. Our tradition here at Antioch, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, is to come forward to the table that Jesus has set for you. Having reflected Um, on anything that the Lord has convicted your heart during this. Confess to him anything that you need to confess. Break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, taking it, remembering what Christ has done for you, and in so doing, proclaiming that he is coming again. There'll be gluten-free available over on this side. If you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, the invitation is not to this table. The invitation is to hear the voice of God calling you by name through Jesus Christ, with the power to change your heart forever. Receive him. Say yes to his call today. And then you can receive this table with this family of God in days to come. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need, men and women who are prayer warriors and faithful, to meet you in the midst of your messes, large and small. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, humbled by the power of your word. We thank you so much that it speaks to us these stories that we can relate to of men and women who needed you so desperately, who got things wrong so often, and yet still you were faithful to make a way for them to know you and then to be drawn back to you over and over and over. And then to be used by you.
And Lord, as we gather here this morning, we are a group of people, many of whom who have come to hear your voice calling them by name and who have said yes. And yet, even in the course of this week or even this day or even during this sermon, have felt our mess that has led us astray in ways big and small. And so we need you drawing us near yet again. So thank you for not only giving us this word and giving us this table, but giving us Jesus himself. And his availability to all of us who here today would call on the name of the Lord and be saved and be renewed. So Lord, in this sacred moment, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people and that you would draw near those who do not know you. And that though it seems small and unimpressive, and perhaps fire shall not fall, help us to believe that you are doing something so amazing right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen.